Let's say a prayer. <coughs> o holy and most merciful God, you have taught us the way of your commandments. We implore you to pour out your grace into our hearts, cause it to bear fruit in us that being ever mindful of your mercies and your laws, we may always be directed to your will and daily increase in love toward you and one another. Enable us to resist all evil and to live a godly life. Help us to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to walk in his steps until we shall possess the kingdom that has been prepared for us in heaven. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Yeah. So I have a handful of things uh, that we could talk about tonight, but first, does anybody have any, any questions, anything on your mind? In our last, I think this will be our last Zoom Bible study. And then um, in the coming weeks here, we'll come up with a plan for having some in-person Bible studies once we get once we get church under our belt. I think. Is there anything uh, anything on your agenda? Anything on your radar? Okay, perfect. Then I'll just talk. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. I. <clears throat> I've been uh, think I, I think a lot about um, the basics of the faith. I've had an occasion to talk with a lot of folks lately who are uh, doing catechesis, instruction in the basics of the faith. And so I always end up talking about the catechism and the different parts of the catechism. And we spend a lot of time on the Ten Commandments, and that's a very helpful thing for a couple of reasons. The most important reason is because God's law is necessary for sinners to understand that they're sinful. We need to hear God's law in order for us to understand that we're sinful and thereby to know that we need God's mercy, to, to lead us to, to cling to God's mercy. Uh, but there's a lot more going on in the Ten Commandments than just bringing our sin to light. And so that's one of the things I wanted to, I wanted to talk about. So let me just pose the question to you. If I, if I ask the question, what, is, what are the Ten Commandments for? What are they for? What kind of answers come to mind? So, your silence is uh, is revealing. <laughs> the, um, a guide, a guide, a curb, law. Yeah. So, you, so those are great. Those are those are the terms that uh, that we often use to help, uh, especially with confirmation kids, to teach them. Right? There's a guide, a curb, and a mirror. Right? Those three things: a guide, a curb, and a mirror. That's what God's law is for. Um, but let's talk. Let's let's. Uh, give a little bit more meat, put a little bit more meat on those bones. When you say that uh, God's law is a curb, the Ten Commandments are a curb, what does that mean? Well, you know when you've gone too far and it guides you back on, if you, um, if you listen, it's like, okay, I guess I hit the curb there. Yeah, right. It, uh, it, it shows you which way the road goes, right? It uh, shows you which way is uh, the right way to go. And it it doesn't just nudge you back, but have you, have you ever driven over a curb at like 55 miles an hour? What does that do to you if you if you run if you pop the curb at 55 miles an hour? You blow out a tire, right? You you destroy your wheel, <laughs> and this is the way God's law works as a curb. I mean, it is um, it's not just a, a gentle suggestion, but it's uh, it it has force to it. It's it compels us. Um, and one of the ways it does that is by all of the, the means that God has put into the world for his law to be enforced. So you take, for instance, the job that parents have with teaching their, their kids God's law. Well, they do that by disciplining, punishing their kids when they break God's law. Same thing with the government. I mean, the government is ideally to promote God's law so that the things that God says are unrighteous and wicked, those are the things that the government punishes. And the things that, the, that God says are good and holy, those are the things that the government rewards. Um, and it uses the only tool in its toolbox. It uses force, punishment, and rewards. Um, so that's a very important thing. This is what God's law is for. Now, one, one way that um, I think is really helpful to think about how God's law works, we, we tend to think of it almost exclusively in negative terms. Like, these are, here's a series of things that you shouldn't do, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Don't do this. And, 
when we have rules, you know this from when you were a kid or when you have kids, that rules that are just, you know, don't do this, they can feel very arbitrary. That it's just somebody who somebody who doesn't want you doesn't want you to ruin their fun your wants to ruin your fun, doesn't want you to interfere, doesn't want you to bother their their life. And so they're telling you not to do this or that. But all of those prohibitions in the law are designed to protect something. They they're are given in order to protect various things. And so I think it's helpful to go through this list just real kind of kind of briefly to think about the things that the, that the law protects. <clears throat> so think about commandments one, two, and three. Uh, having only one God, <clears throat> fearing, loving, trusting God above all things, uh, honoring God's name, and remembering the Sabbath day. What do those laws protect? What do they protect? makes god god it protects yeah. god's god's sovereignty over the everything yeah that's a great way to put it god's sovereignty i was i was kind of thinking uh, his dignity but i like i like sovereignty better it it uh keeps god in his place keeps us from putting taking god out of his place and putting ourselves or something else in his place and it does it in all of these different ways in the first place just you know in terms of who you fear, love, and trust. Who do you look to for good things? And then um, our relationship with God is, is characterized by the fact that he gives us his name to use. So how you use God's name shows how you regard God. Is he above all? Is he the creator of everything? Or is he underneath you? Is he to be used for your own purposes, for whatever you, whatever you want? Um, and so, like you said, Jason, that's a great answer. He, he, those laws, one, two, and three, they protect God's sovereignty. How about uh, commandment four, honor your father and mother? What does that protect? Protects uh, um, authority. Bingo. Yeah. It, it, and I, I might even take it a step further. Um, so it protects author uh, the relationship between authority and subordinate. Right. So you can so you can think of a whole bunch of different relationships that are like that. Right. The most obvious one is parents and children. Authority, subordinate. Kids are obedient to their parents. What other what other kinds of authority relationships can you think of? Government and citizens. Government and citizen. Perfect. Pastors and congregation. Perfect. Employer, employee. Yeah. Yeah. Good. How about this one? How about husband and wife? That's a an ordered relationship of, of authority uh, that God has established. Um, all of those relationships. Careful, careful. <laughs> it's in the Bible. <laughs> who, who, who's answering to who? <laughs> uh, my uh, uh, husband. Husband is the head, and wife is the body. You couldn't see my hand motion there. <laughs> But but think about it. I mean, this is such a great commandment because so uh, at face value, obviously, the world gets run, um, go, runs amok if the relationship between children and parents gets inverted, right? Just think about what would happen if if your kids ran your house or if when you were a kid, you ran your parents' house, right? Just to, I mean, it, you've read or heard of the Lord of the Flies when these kids get stranded on the island and they all, you know, all hell breaks loose, basically, right? It's not good. It's a bad situation. In the same way, when any of these ordered relationships, authority and subordinate, when they get put out of order, the world gets turned upside down. And it, that goes all the way back, or we see the first instance of that, um, this chain reaction that happens in the Garden of, of Eden, right? So God is obviously the, the supreme authority. And in fact, that's an important thing to say about every authority among people uh, is not the absolute authority. So, you know, parents, government, teachers, uh, pastor, husband, they all have God as their head, right? They're, none of them are absolute authorities, but they're all subordinate to God as head. So now picture what happened in the Garden of Eden. You've got Eve listening to the serpent instead of listening to God. And then Adam takes Eve's word about the fruit being good to eat, and everything is flipped upside down. It's all backwards and messed up. And so the reason why we have the fourth commandment is to protect the order that God has established in the world because it's good. Um, 
there needs to be order, and that's what that's what the commandment protects. Make sense? Tracking with me so far? Okay. So then the fifth commandment. This one's probably this one's like the, always the easiest commandment to consider. What what does the fifth commandment protect? Murder. Okay, so it prevents murder, or it aims to prevent murder. But what in in preventing murder, what does it protect? Life. Yeah, life. Um, and even. Uh, so in Luther's explanation, we don't want, he says, we fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor and his body. So not even, you know, it protects physical bodies, physical well-being. Um, and when Jesus talks about this commandment, of course, he brings out this important point that the protection that God means to give to physical bodies in the fifth commandment doesn't start with, like, as I'm about to raise my hand to stab the knife, somebody grabs my arm and stops it. But that commandment means to protect people's bodies starting in the hearts of other people. So the commandment means you shouldn't even think hateful thoughts about your neighbor because you've already begun the act of killing them in your heart. That, goes, that same sort of thinking applies to the fourth commandment with authority, right? So there's a way to sort of go through the motions in respecting authority, but, never, but, not, but doing it begrudgingly without, without joy in your heart. And and already then you've you've upset the apple cart. You've already turned you flipped order upside down because uh, our obedience to authority shouldn't be grumbling and begrudging, but it should be willingly. We're not being. We should do it. We don't. We shouldn't have to be compelled because we know that it's good for us. Um, okay, so we got protection for authority and subordinate for the relationship between authority and subordinate. We've got protection for physical well-being for for bodies. Sixth commandment protects what? Adultery. Prevents adultery. What is it? What does it protect? Marriage. Marriage. Yeah. Protects protects the foundation of the family, right? Uh, uh, protects the um, relationship that is an image of Christ's relationship to the church, and that's one of the reasons why that commandment is such an important one. Because in marriage, we see a picture of the relationship between God and the church. So protects marriage. Seventh commandment protects what? Stealing. Property. Property, yeah. It protects your property. So you, the stuff that belongs to you. And um, the ninth and tenth commandments are really about that as well. Protecting possessions and property. Um, <clears throat> and again, the ninth and tenth commandments get to what's going on in your heart. So that as soon as you begin to envy what somebody else has, you've already taken it from them. You've already violated their their property in your heart. Um and in Luther's explanation to the, all of those commandments, um, he makes a very careful point about um, how the law works. So it's very, very easy when it comes to, comes to the laws about stealing. It's very easy to convince ourselves that we've kept the law by, getting, by not outright taking something, but getting it in a dishonest way or a way that only appears right. And that is, I think, one of the one of the hardest uh, one of the hardest components of the commandments to to keep to keep, is because we we like to be legalists and think, well, if the law says it's okay, you know, if uh, if they signed on the dotted line, then everything, you know, then so be it. There it is. I you know I got it. If uh, if the store gives me too much of a refund, well, they you know they did it. You know, <laughs> if they give me if they if they they undercharged me, well, they they you know it's their fault, and so it's my, you know, I I I deserve this, but in fact, it's theft because it's in a manner that only appears right. Um, okay, the Eighth Commandment. What does the Eighth Commandment protect? Lying. Truth. Protects the truth. Okay, now, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, push back on that a little bit. Anybody else have any other answers besides the truth? What does the Eighth Commandment protect? Bearing, bearing false witness against your neighbor. So if I don't, so, okay, so if I don't bear false witness, if I don't tell lies about you, Jason, what am, what am I protecting? Honestly. His reputation. Yeah, his reputation, right? And, and so this is why I pushed it, pushed back even against the truth and honesty, because um, it's possible to tell the truth in a way that's aimed at hurting somebody's reputation. And this commandment protects people from that, even, even that. So like, if I, you know, um, 
if I know something about somebody, I can, it, it's true, you know, it's true. And I can go around and spread it to everybody, but I can't say that I've kept the Eighth Amendment because I've used that truth in a way that is meant to hurt their reputation, destroy their reputation. And we talked about this when we were, when we were going over the book of James, you know, this is one of the, uh, one of the deadliest uh, commandments to break because once you start that fire with your tongue, once that little spark goes out, it's impossible to stop it. And once a person's reputation is destroyed, we've seen this so much in the age of social media, right? That people, whether allegations are true or false, doesn't matter one bit. Once their reputation has been tarnished, it is very, very hard to come back. Um, and your reputation is a very valuable thing. And so it's remarkable, isn't it? That God, you know, God gives a commandment specifically designed to protect people's reputation. Um, and there are other parts of the, of the God's law that, you know, that relate to this as well. No court is supposed to admit a charge from anybody without two or three witnesses. The, the testimony of one person is insufficient to establish a charge. You need two or three witnesses in order to establish a charge because a person's reputation is so valuable and so vulnerable um, that if you, if you uh, don't take precautions, it can be easily destroyed. So I wanted to, I wanted to, you to think about this because um, the, what's clear is that God's law, the Ten Commandments, are not just, are not merely a set of prohibitions, but they are uh, laws that are given for the good of humanity to protect, to protect us from each other. We need them. Without them, um, the world would just descend into utter chaos and we would be in grave danger all the time. But God's law exists to protect us. And it does that, like you said, Dorothy, as a curb by putting a stop to things that are harmful to our neighbors. And there you can see what's at the root of God's law. You can sum up, as Jesus says, you can sum up the commandments in this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, right? You can sum up commandments four through 10 is love your neighbor as yourself. If we knew what love was, if we understood love well enough, um, if we had uh, an appreciation for it and we had wisdom, we wouldn't need all the commandments outlined because we would just say, okay, yeah, this is love and that's not love. And we would know the difference. But because of sin, because of our hearts have been corrupted, we need God to tell us, you know, to lay it out for us so that we know. Okay, so that's, yeah, go ahead, Grandpa. Oh, go ahead. No, you finish what you're going to say. Well, I was going to move on to the next thing. So, oh, no, we, I think it would be uh, maybe useful to reflect on the parallelism between the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. You want to say something about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so right, right in the first, uh, the first couple commandments, you can see some parallel. So, the introduction to the Lord's Prayer says, "Our Father who art in heaven," and this gets, you know, this has to do with God's sovereignty, right? But He's not a sovereign, as in He's a tyrant, but He's a sovereign, as in He's a Father. He's He's sovereign over creation, the way a father is sovereign over his household, and um, uh, we're invited to pray to Him. In that capacity and the and the commandments one two and th three protect that relationship and then we get more specific our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name how is god's name kept holy well it's kept holy when the second commandment is kept uh when we use god's name to bless and not to curse to call upon him in every trouble to pray praise and give thanks um and we do that already in the as when we when we pray the lord's prayer this is the great thing about the lord's prayer uh is that it is um it is the fulfillment of the commandments. It fulfills uh, commandments one and two, um, just like that. By praying the Lord's Prayer, you're keeping the commandments. Does that get to what you were getting at there, Grandpa? That's what I was talking about. And the third one is maybe a little of a stretch, but uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then the, the, the Lord's Prayer is a little bit different from that but that can be stretched <laughs> <laughs> yeah well when okay so here here i'll stretch it for you when we when we remember the sabbath day by hearing god's word and receiving the gift of his body and blood in the sacrament when we remember the sabbath day in that way god's kingdom comes among us that's where god's kingdom is manifest wherever christ is present in his word and that's what we pray for in the the third or the second petition of the lord's prayer thy kingdom come um Good. Okay. I think I told you once that uh, Pastor Zickler from Chicago uh, told me one time that he had a friend at the seminary that actually showed the parallelism between all Ten Commandments and the Lord's 
the whole Lord's Prayer. He didn't show me what that was, but I, yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, I think I think it it ends up becoming a little bit more of a stretch as you go as you move down the line. But yeah. Okay, so um, so back to the back to the original question: What are the Ten Commandments for? In the first place, they serve this very important purpose of keeping the world from just descending into chaos. Then the then the second important purpose is showing us our sin. And we've talked about this before, but it's, it's helpful to repeat it again and again. Um, this is why before we have a service with the Lord's Supper, um, I say to you, it's fitting in coming to the Lord's Supper to take some time to examine yourself according, according to the Ten Commandments. You do that in order, so, in order that you would recognize your sin and so that you would understand your need for God's mercy, so that you can receive the sacrament worthily and well prepared, believing the words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. You can think about it a little bit, um, uh, a little bit like uh, in, in terms of uh, going to see the doctor. I was thinking about the analogy today. So a lot of time, in a lot of ways, having a pastor is like having a doctor. Um, and there's some really helpful ways that this lines up. So for instance, um, you know, a doctor prescribes medicine to a patient based on the diagnosis, right? So the, the doctor examines the patient looks for symptoms, tries to find the underlying cause, and then prescribes medication or some treatment in order to solve the problem. And a pastor works in a similar way. Now, of course, you know, we all know that the underlying cause is sin, right? That's, that's what we're getting at. In, in every person, the underlying cause is sin. But that sin manifests in lots of different ways. It manifests in behaviors that a person exhibits. It manifests in pain that they feel because of sin that others have uh, committed against them. And all of, you know, sort of dealing with those things, that's part and parcel of the work of the pastor. Um, now, the pastor has different medicines in his, in his doctor's bag, just as a, a physician has different medicines. Um, principally, the pastor has the forgiveness of sins and the, the binding key, withholding forgiveness. Those are two medicines that the, that the pastor can apply based on what, what a person needs. Um, but there's this interesting thing that happens, or, or maybe it's not an interesting thing, but there's this important thing that happens. Uh, when you go to the doctor, when you see a new doctor for the first time, they always ask, the, have you fill out a questionnaire, right? Do you have any allergies? Do you have any, you know, what's your family's medical history? What other medications are you taking? And that's a really important question because um, if the doctor is going to prescribe some medicine to you, um, it's very important that you not be taking other medicine that's going to interact with it, right? So think, carry that analogy to uh, the medicine of the Lord's Supper, which the pastor applies, the medicine of forgiveness. If you, are, if you come to church and you're taking other medicine, <laughs> so you're taking the medicine that the world applies to people, which says things like, you're going to be just fine. You're, people aren't so bad after all, or those aren't really sins that you've got, or God's never going to judge you, or there is no such thing as God, or any, any manner of uh, kinds of medication the world applies to the problem of sin and death. Usually it involves just dismissing it or saying that it's not true. Um, if you come to church taking that medicine, uh, then the medicine of the sacrament is going to interact with it and it's going to cause you trouble, right? It's going to actually hurt you. Those two things are going to interact. And so that's why you look at this, the, you, you go through the, an examination of the Ten Commandments beforehand. You look at the Ten Commandments and you say, wait a minute, that medicine that the world would prescribe to me is it's dead wrong because here I have God's word saying to me, I'm a sinner. I haven't kept his law in all of these ways. And the wages of sin is death. I've got this terminal illness and not the illness that the world says that I have. I've got this disease that needs to be cured with this medicine. And that's what the, that's what uh, the 10 commandments do to you. They, they show you that there's only one medicine that can cure you. And it's God's mercy. That is the only thing that can help you out of the out of the bind that you're in, out of the out of the grave that you're headed towards, um, and this is where the commandments are are precious to Christians, because the moment we lose sight of our sinfulness is the moment we uh, lose sight of God's mercy. The moment we forget that we uh, are are dead in our trespasses and sins on our own, uh, we don't need Jesus anymore, um, and that is the last place you want to be. So, as a matter of fact, a Christian spends his whole life learning more and more the depths of his sin. Um, and that's, so that's a very important purpose that the, that the commandments serve. Uh, so we got, we got two reasons for the commandments so far. Making sense? Okay, this is, I know that this is all stuff that's very familiar to you, but I really, I, it, it, it's, um, 
the kind of stuff that's very helpful to refresh um, because it can re-energize you to use the commandments. And what I want you to come away with is, a, is a, you know, um, maybe, maybe an impulse to, to put the commandments to use uh, more in your life. So here's the third third use of your commandments. In, in the paradigm that you mentioned, Dorothy, this would, this would be the, the guide, okay? So we had the curb. They show you what God says not to do, and they keep you from doing that. The mirror shows you what you look like. And the guide, it shows you uh, how God wants you to live. And this, um, this use is peculiar to Christians. This, this use is only useful to people who uh, have been given the Holy Spirit. Because one of the things, I talked about this in church on Sunday, and I've talked about this with, with this Bible study before. Um, you have a new heart. When you were baptized, you were given a new heart, and you were given the Spirit of God. And the way that spirit manifests in your life is that you love the things that God loves, or you grow to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that he hates. So it's like, um, suppose that, suppose that uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's like, I mean, it's like a child and his father. So if you really admire your father, if you love your father, then you also want to know what are the things that he loves. And you're going to want to know what are the things that he hates so that you can avoid them, right? You don't want to do the things that he hates and you want to do the things that he loves so that you can please him, so that he can be proud of you, so that you can make him happy. Um, and it's exactly the same thing. It's the same. It's, it's similar, again, to like being married. So um, you don't go through married life never asking the question, what makes my wife happy? <laughs> that, wouldn't, that wouldn't last very long, right? That wouldn't be very good. You, 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 don't ask, you don't go through life avoiding that question, but you ask that question day in and day out. You say, well, um, what, what pleases my wife and what displeases her? Because I want to do those things and I want to avoid those things that are displeasing to her. Um, it's the same thing with our relationship with God. So when we ask that question, because we love God, uh, what pleases him? Well, the answer there is in the Ten Commandments. This is what pleases God. When you have him as father above all things, when you put his name to use, when you hear his word and receive his sacraments, when you honor the authorities that are above you and you uh, treat with dignity and love the subordinates who are underneath you, when you protect your neighbor's body, when you protect marriage, when you uh, protect your neighbor's possessions and when you protect their reputation, those are the things. And this is, the, this is an amazing thing. It's like if you, if you discovered all of a sudden um, that there was this, like a really simple thing that made your dad really happy. And you're like, this is, this is amazing. All I have to do is, uh, you know, turn the lights off in the house and my dad will be so happy. You know, <laughs> like what an amazing thing to find out that, that that's what's pleasing to your dad. Well, it's kind of like that with God's law. Here it is. Uh, my, my, my law is not burdensome, God says. Jesus says, my, uh, the commandments that I give to you are not burdensome. Um, they're especially not burdensome to people who find joy in doing what pleases their heavenly father. And so that's another reason why holding the commandments, you know, always before your eyes, meditating on them, keeping them fresh in your mind is such a valuable thing because as you go through your life, um, you've got the world and your own flesh and the devil all telling you exactly the opposite. They're telling you to do things that are completely contrary to God's law, completely displeasing to God. And so you need the constant reminder uh, of what pleases God. Um, and as uh, you know, this is what we're after as Christians. This is what heaven is going to be like. So in, in a very real way, as we exercise ourselves in keeping God's commandments, we're practicing for heaven. We're getting ready to live the life that we're going to live in heaven. I mean, um, it's kind of a kind of a strange way to look at it, but it's kind of like, well, you don't want to get to heaven and never have done these things before because you're going to be doing them all the time when you get to heaven, right? You don't want to get to heaven and never have, never have loved your neighbor because that's what heaven is going to be about. Um, so there you go. I, I, you know, I, I've had an occasion to talk about that with, uh, new folk, folks who are new to the church recently. And, um, I thought it might just be helpful to give you a bit of a, a refresher in that as well. Any questions, anything, uh, makes not make sense or need clarifying? You're all very quiet tonight. Okay, question. Okay. We will communicate in heaven. Will we learn all learn a new language? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, in uh, in Revelation, it or and in other books in Isaiah and some of the prophetic books, we we hear that it's people from every tribe and nation 
and tongue, right? So people coming, speaking in every different tongue. And, and on Pentecost, this is the celebration this Sunday. What happens on Pentecost? It's not that everybody hears the same language, but everybody hears the disciples speaking as if they were speaking in their own tongue. So you got all these people from all different nations in Jerusalem for, for the celebration for Pentecost. And when they hear the apostles preaching, they're hearing it in their own language, not in the apostles' language. So I think that that's what it's going to be like in heaven. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> what else? Anything else? Okay, how about heaven and paradise? Are they two different things or are they the same thing? Uh, I think they're two different things. So you okay. mean when, the, when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, is he talking about heaven? I think that um, there's, there's a clear distinction between uh, the glory of the eternal presence of God, which we, all, which we Christians will enjoy um, after Judgment Day. There's a difference between that and the rest that Christians experience while, they, while their bodies lie in the grave. And that's, that's what Jesus is promising to, at least it seems to be what Jesus is promising to the thief on the cross. Although he could, you know, the, the, the word today, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. It could be that he's even speaking a little figuratively saying, look, when you, when you die, it's as though you go to sleep and wake up the next day and there, there you are in eternity, you know. Um, how's that, Doug? Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> you didn't think they were the same. How yes. You, so, like when you you go to the Lord's Supper, and you're 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 seeing the what what the commandments show you about yourself, so you know you're you're going with all of that. Is it then that you 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 take all of that burden and you leave it there? I mean, is that um, because when I look at the commandments, I, it's really hard to look at them apart from Christ and not have them be depressing because you know you see where you fall short, left and right, and even when you try and and do to love your neighbor, you don't do it right because you can't you know you can't attain that. So. You know, is is that one of the? I know that maybe that was off the topic, but no. is it one of the purposes so, of of what we get at the Lord's Supper is that we can take all of that um, insufficiency and 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 let him, and then you know he he takes care of that for us. Well, I mean, he is he is your sufficiency. So th this is um. There are so many strains of Christianity that want to free Christians from um, having to basically to having to free Christians from the reality of the fact that they continue to live their lives in the flesh. So this is an important thing that Luther talked about. He said, until you're, until, as long as your heart is beating, as long as you're here on earth living this life, you are still in your flesh. You still have this old, as, as Luther would call it, this, this uh, sack of maggots hanging on to you, right? And you, you can't, you can't, you don't haul around a sack of maggots without being depressed by it. I mean, it's just like, it's not a joyful experience, right? There it is. They're just crawling everywhere. They stink. It's gross. And that is actually a salutary attitude for a Christian to have, to say, this <coughs> is awful. I, I'm a wreck, you know? And Paul talks this way um, in Romans chapter seven, and he, he puts it so well. It's a help, it's such a helpful thing. Um, you, this is such a familiar verse. You know it. It's, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, right? There he takes it to the extreme. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. And by this, he means this is like, this is just the way things are, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Okay, so this is the state of things for a Christian. You want to do what's right, but evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God. There he's talking about the new man, that new heart that loves what God says and wants to do what God says is good. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So, it, I mean, the image that he uses is, is an image of battle, right? That's, it's ongoing, continually being waged. And then I think what's best about the way Paul talks about this is how, how he resolves it. Okay, so he's, he's getting to this fever pitch. He's saying, this is, this is a terrible state, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? <laughs> Who will deliver me? And what's the answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's, that's it's his only answer is Jesus Christ, period. Right? So he's, de he's delivering me from this body of death, but it's not yet. It's not right now. Um, so the, key, the, the balancing act for a Christian is to never shy away from the reality of that of that burden, right? That you're you're bearing your flesh, you're constantly subduing your flesh and uh, being overcome by it, but putting it down. That's happening your whole life long. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're condemned. That doesn't mean you're under condemnation. John writes this in 1 John chapter three. This is such a beautiful passage. He says, whenever our heart condemns us, which is what happens when you read God's law, your heart condemns you. Whenever our heart condemns us, because your heart, your heart, which is, you know, infected by your flesh still, looks at God's law and says, there's no way that God can love me because I'm a terrible person. I he says it in, in the Bible. He says, I, go, I deserve to go to hell for all of these things I've done, right? So your heart condemns you. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything, right? So God is great. So your heart says, I'm a wretched sack of maggots. There's this war going on inside of me, and I am I feel like I'm losing the battle. That's what your heart says. And God's God is greater than your heart. He has overcome uh even the things that your heart uh that makes your heart uh despair. And that's exactly the point. So um you you want the, the goal of a Christian is to get to the last day, the last the last breath that you take, um, completely hopeless in yourself. You don't want it, you don't. You don't want to get to the last day having thought that you did all right here and there, that you, that you kind of figured things out and managed it. You want to get there and know that you are uh, com in, in completely dependent on God's mercy. Um, now, that, that doesn't mean that you um, are, need to be depressed because the joy that a Christian gets is from the fact that Christ, quite apart from anything that is in you, has loved you, right? And has loved you in spite of that. Um, that's, a, that's a source of joy that is stable and unchanging, right? So as you go through your life, you feel better or worse about yourself as the days go on. But Christ's love is continual, permanent, unmoving, unmoving. And uh, it's, he wants us to build our house on that, on that solid ground. So in some sense, I mean, so the burden doesn't go away, but in the Lord's Supper, you receive the assurance that your sins have been forgiven, that God's Mercy is greater than the condemnation that your heart can level at you and greater even than the condemnation that God's own word levels at you. I mean, this is what's remarkable about it. Uh, God says the wages of sin is death. He says it, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And his word is stronger than that eternal declaration of, of his own law. His mercy is stronger than that. Okay. 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 <laughs> Any other questions? Um, I'll yield to anybody else, but if nobody's got a question, I got one. Okay. <laughs> Did, uh, this is kind of on a different subject. Did you read this Christian singer? A singer in the Christian group has declared to the world that he no longer believes in God. I, I saw the headline, but I didn't read any articles oh. about it. Well, I didn't spend a lot of time reading it, but I just it just amazes me. You know, it, if God exists, and we believe he does, people can't, make, atheists can't make that God disappear and not exist by saying, I don't believe it. <laughs> and I, and if you look around at all the proof that God exists, I just don't understand it. But anyway. 
Yeah, well, the, the psalmist agrees with you, right? The fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But it's an, it's an interesting question to ask um, why somebody would do that. And um, I think that at, at the root of it, it has something to do with a person's conscience. So you think, you think about what your conscience does to you. Your conscience tells you when you're right or wrong. Okay, so if you do something that you know is wrong, your conscience feels the weight of that, right? And uh, it stings you, it, it nags at you. It says, it reminds you that you've done something wrong. And your conscience gains a lot of strength when it knows that it's God's law that tells you that you've done something wrong. And so one of the easiest ways to uh, take away some of that burden from your conscience is to sort of indulge the delusion that there is no God, that there's no judgment coming. And there's, a, I mean, it makes sense that people would want to believe that because it means that they, that whatever their conscience is telling them is just some sort of a psychological problem that they have. It's not, it's not real guilt. It's not real sin. Um, and that's a huge relief, right? That means, that means you can live, you can do what you don't have to worry about anything anymore. You can just do whatever pleases you. And, um, that's that's exactly what your flesh wants. So, Jason, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, um, and I don't know if this is right by any means, but on that same subject, um, I'm I'm a, I don't I didn't read that article either, but I kind of have an inkling that he was never really grounded in the first place, and I don't know fame and fortune brings out the the worst in a lot of people so yeah i i that's kind of my first when i i kind of read the first couple i don't know a couple lines to it and i just i had something else i had to do so but that's kind of the first thing i thought of was uh it's, it's not the first time i've heard that story from someone before either so yeah. i'm just kind of yeah. guessing that more than likely he was never really there to begin with and was probably and i'm just i don't know so i'll, I'll stop while i'm ahead <laughs> well father, we, do, we have his the father uh, was a pastor is that right okay yeah 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 you know we have the the parable of the sower which is which is helpful for illuminating some of these things right so you can see how the seed gets planted and, and can and you can begin to grow and begin to even look like it's going to bear fruit but there are lots of things that um Lots of ways that that plant can get destroyed, which is, you know, tragic. It's a tragedy um, and really is, uh, you know, a, a cause of great grief. Um, but it is all at the same time, you know, cause for us to take heed. You know, Paul says, let, let he who stands take heed lest he fall. Because, look, you and I are made of the very same stuff as that person, that that musician, right? We're subject to the same, very same tendencies and and uh desires of the flesh and uh if we don't take if we don't take care if we don't take guard or take heed of the warning um uh, jesus says i he's he in the, the the gospel for last sunday he said i tell you all of these things about the dangers that are coming about the persecution that's coming and the temptation that's coming so that you don't fall away right so that's why we listen that's why we pay attention yeah, if you read any comments in this darn Tribune, and of course that's the worst thing you should ever do. <laughs> but I, because of the COVID thing with the churches opening up, you know, and whatnot, I was reading comments, and it is alarming and sad to see how many people have no concept of what church is or what Christian, being a Christian is all about. And it, even to a point where people were, that call themselves Christians have no concept that it, it you know, it's just unbelievable. You know, they're, 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 these so-called Christians were attacking them Lutherans, them Catholics. They don't know what they're doing and da 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 da. You know, why? You know, church, you know, and then there was some that were trying to use, you know, the church thing as, um, being a built you know more church is more than a building and obviously we all know that yeah. but they fail to realize that it's not all about um jesus loves me it's about receiving the sacraments 
and you cannot receive sacraments and sitting on my couch. It just doesn't work that way. And these, these people just have no concept about it. And I tell you, there is a lot of hate, a lot of hate for Christians. And reading those comments, I, I mean, there is, I, I read hundreds of comments because I, I don't know why, but it intrigues me to see how putrid and people are. And I was trying to look for good comments. I was trying to look for the good person. And boy, they don't read the Minneapolis paper commenting and <laughs> I guess. I mean, it was just total negative all the way. And that, that it's very disheartening. Yeah. So our society, especially, it, it, it's, it's the, there's a lot of weeds in the old field of the, the growing plants. Let's, let's put it that way. Yeah. And in a very real sense, there's nothing new under the sun, you know, cause that's, it is, we, we've, we're seeing it in a time right now, but I, um, that it kind of stands out. Um, but uh, the, like the apostles talked that way. Peter talked about um, how uh, he goes, he says, he says the time that is past is sufficient for doing the things that the, that the, the Gentiles want to do living in, passions and sensuality and all these all these lawless things the time that has passed is sufficient for doing those things and he says um and they and they with respect to this they um they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery he calls it so th- all of those commenters in the star tribune you know they genuinely can't believe why why wouldn't why you would want to go to church like what what is the benefit of going to church and peter goes on they malign you for it they they say they say things about you but he goes on, and this is really important. Um, he says, when you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So you're blessed when you're insulted for the name of Christ because you've got the Holy Spirit. And you are blessed in your suffering, Peter says, insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. So you think about it. like um, That's exactly what happens when somebody says, you know, uh, Christians are, they're all hypocrites. They're all self-centered. This is just, you know, um, nonsense. It's all fanaticism or whatever. When they, when they say that, those are the kinds of things that they said about Jesus, you know, and that he said, they said about his followers, those fanatics, right? Um, and if you, so when you share in Christ's suffering, this is what Peter says, um, rejoice, <laughs> rejoice, because you will also rejoice and be glad at the revealing of his glory. So if we share in his suffering, that means we also will share in his glory. And that is exactly what we want, which is, you know, it doesn't mean you go out and look for suffering. And in fact, you don't have to look for it, right? You don't have to look for ridicule. It comes your way. Um, But we can actually rejoice in it in a way that, you know, we can rejoice at something which would otherwise be completely disheartening. Like uh, sitting and reading all those comments, you know, that could really put you in a bad mood. (laughs) So you got to hear what Peter says and and rejoice, Ed. Okay. <laughs> well, they like like Jesus even said they hated him first. They're gonna hate. They're gonna hate us. So yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Can I ask one more Ten Commandment question? Yeah, go for it. Or are you at your limit for those? Nope. Never. Never had. Could have enough. Is there any? Do you think it means any more? Maybe I'm remembering it wrong that the second set of tablets that God wrote those himself, is that what happened? Did Moses wrote the first ones and then he smashed them and then God wrote the others? Is that what it says? So I know that with the second set of commandments, uh, it's written with the finger of God. That's what it says. Um, Does he say, write these things down? Does he say that to Moses? Um, let me see. Moses was up there on the mountain. I'm looking at Exodus chapter 20. Um, God spoke all these words, and he said all these things to Moses. I'm not sure. So that's a good question. I don't know the answer. I'll, I'll have to do a little bit more looking. Um, uh, it's one of the few places that we hear that phrase, the finger of God, which is kind of an interesting thing. Another, another time is when the plagues are being... Um, are coming on Egypt, and the, the magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. Um, but it definitely is a sign of his sovereign power, his authority, right? This is not 
this is permanent, unchanging. It was just a curiosity that when I think of the commandments, I think they were important enough that he, he wrote them. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, Come up to the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So that happens the first time as well. God, God wrote it. Yeah. That's Exodus chapter 24. Um, good. Okay. What else? Pastor, I have a question about the back on the unbeliever, the atheist. Yeah. Um, Who is that? Who's that okay. talking right there? It's Barb. Hi, Barb. Hi. Um, I had a co-worker say to me not long ago that her son claimed to be an atheist. And I thought, well, how sad. I thought, well, how does an atheist become saved if he's an unbeliever, but yet he's a child of God? So isn't that where someone else just prays on his behalf then? Um, tell, tell me more. I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, if if her son is an unbeliever, we don't just say, oh, well, too bad for him. Right. So isn't that then our responsibility to pray for that person? Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, that's one of our chief responsibilities. Um, I, I think often about the way that, about the, the, the privileges that Christians have because they bear God's name. So you think about the, tech, the second commandment. Um, uh, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Um, and the, the flip side of that, the positive side is put God's name to use. So he, he, God takes his name and he puts it on his people. And it's like, um, it's like uh, giving them a blank check. You know, you can use this for whatever good things you want. So we have access to God. We can, and Jesus says the same thing. He says, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will do it. Whatever you ask him in my name, he will do it. So we can ask God for anything. But people who don't have God's name, that is, you know, an unbeliever, somebody who uh, has put off God's name or never had it in the first place, they can't ask God for anything because they don't have his name. And so um, it's like, it's like, you know, knowing somebody in the, in the mayor's office, you know, like, um, or it, you know, having a direct line to the president, right? So you're at the average person can't ask the president for anything. But if you know the president, and you ask them on their on on their behalf. Wow, you can really get some things done for that person, right? Now, uh, there's a there's a a line at which we you know we can't cross it where we can't believe for somebody else. Um, but by our prayers, we uh, we bring the concern before God and we we move Him. He's He's moved to compassion um, to do the the very same thing that He does for everybody calling uh, by his Holy Spirit. And that's, uh, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Um, pray for those people who uh, do not believe God's word, that their hearts would be softened, that they would hear, uh, and hear the voice of their shepherd and, and um, listen to it. Yeah, that's, I mean, I don't think there's any more important work uh, among the things that we do in the church. Um, and this is one of the reasons why gathering as a congregation is very important because that's, we have work to do as a congregation. You know, when we say our prayers, when we say the prayer of the church, there are some petitions that we say over and over again, we pray for our government. This is one of the things that uh, Paul says to, um, says to Timothy, he says, remind the people to pray for, um, this is what I want the, want the people to do, to pray for the government with, with, uh, you know, outstretched arms, pray for them. Um, we pray for the sick and the distressed. We pray for, uh, good weather. We pray for, uh, you know, that we would avoid pestilence, that we would be free from pestilence. We pray for um, those people who, uh, who are in error and those who haven't heard God's word and believed it. Um, and when we, get, when we gather together as, as a church and do that, it's not just, it's not just like um, we're not just going through the motions, but we are actually doing exactly what God, the job that God has given us to do. Sorry, that was a longer answer than was probably warranted, but does that, does that help? Answer the question, Barb. Yeah, thanks. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, this this reminds you know this gets back to um, what you were saying just a bit ago, Ed, about how um, it's kind of unintelligible to anybody outside the church. It's unintelligible why why you would bother going to church. Um, 
you know, it makes sense sort of if you think of church as like a club, right? So why would you go, I don't know what's a good club. Why would you go to the, to the, to the Lions Club or to the VFW or something like that, you know? Um, because you share something in common with those, with those people and you have um, programs and activities that you can uh, participate in together. It, it's a voluntary kind of an organization where um, you can get some good done, right? Or you can just enjoy each other's company. And if you think of church in that way, then, um, you know, it fits into a certain category. But, but church is actually categorically different than that. It does serve that function. We all have something in common. We all love being together. We love the fellowship that we share. You know, sitting and having coffee and, and treats in the fellowship hall is high on the list of important things that we do. You know, it's not, but it's not the same. It's not the same level of importance as what, what goes on in the divine service, you know, right? So we would be gravely mistaken if we came to church and only had coffee and treats and didn't go into the sanctuary ever, right? But we can go into the sanctuary and not have coffee and treats and, and still be the church, you know, because what happens in church is all of these things that the community of believers, the body of Christ is, is called to do by God, beginning with, like you said, Ed, receiving the forgiveness of sins, receiving the sacrament. You can't, you can't receive the sacrament from your couch. Although maybe we talked about this a little bit. Lots of churches are trying to make that happen. And it's an abomination. It's really, it's, it's uh, not, not a good thing. Um, but you can't do that by yourself on your couch. You need to be with the body of Christ in order to do that. Um, but we also have all these other things that we do. We, we listen to God's word publicly proclaimed, right? So there's a difference between sitting and, and reading your Bible by yourself and having somebody preach God's word to you. Because uh, it's, like, it's like being a, a, a physician. You go, to, you go to the doctor in order to have the doctor examine you and apply the medicine to you, right? You don't do that for yourself because you, you, it's hard to be unbiased when you're looking at yourself. But this is one of the reasons why you have a pastor to, to provide that for you. And we have this holy work that we're called to do in ministering to the world especially by means of our prayers, our prayers in church, the prayer of the church that we pray, you know, every Sunday, just after, after we sing the offertory and before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that is such an important part of our job as Christians to pray on behalf of the world um, because the world cannot pray for itself. So that's our work. That's our job. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, um, it doesn't suffice for us to remain separate and not, and not gather together, you know? Okay, there you go. What else? Let me, let, since I have you all here, let me just, Heidi and I were, were working on this earlier today. I just want to tell you what's going to happen on, in, the, in the church so at least some people have a clear picture of what's going on. <laughs> Heidi had this great suggestion. So the plan was to have people sit in just one half of the pew and then in the next row, they'd sit in the opposite half of the pew and then in the next row, the opposite half of the pew. So you'd have, a pew between people front and back, and there'd be some distance from side to side. And um, Heidi suggested that we have people sit in one half on Sunday and then the other half be on Wednesday. So each pew is labeled with one half for Sunday and one half for Wednesday. So if you come to church on Sunday, find a pew that, and sit on the half that says Sunday. And then if you come on Wednesday, sit in the half that says Wednesday. And uh, hopefully that will become clear. We're also, uh, we're, um, for communion, I was thinking I'd have uh, just, smaller groups of people come forward to communion, but a lot of the, um, all of the, all of our circuit churches are doing what's a continuous line communion. So instead of coming up in groups, it's just one long line that comes through and I'll stand in one spot with the, with the body and um, the assistants will have the blood next to me and you just come through and you receive it and you go straight back to your seat instead of stopping at the rail and kneeling down or, or lining up all together. It'll just be a continuous cycle. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's it, it, for the long term, but for the, for the short term, I think that it'll, it'll serve us pretty well. So just so you, you have an idea of what's coming down the pike. Um, and just, just so you guys know too, they're kind of color coded. So I think it's Sunday is green and Wednesday is red. So you'll sit in that color as well to kind of help you. And, and Heidi printed Sunday and Wednesday on the pieces of paper too. So I, I think it's, it's a brilliant solution. Should be, as long as you know what day it is when you come to church, you should be okay. All right. We should wrap this up, huh?
No. <laughs> is there a requirement for red on Sunday because it's Pentecost? Well, if we I don't we didn't we didn't line it up quite that precisely. No. <laughs> but you can wear red. Yeah, you could wear red. I just picked two colors that I know colorblind people can still see. <laughs> That's good thinking. <laughs> okay. Well, let's uh, let's pray. I, so um, we're not going to have Bible study this Sunday or next Wednesday, but in the in the meantime, I'm going to work out a kind of a plan. So I think I'd like to have Bible study on Sunday after church in the fellowship hall. Not this Sunday, but um, in the future. Um, I don't know. I, I imagine all of you, all of you would could be there on Sunday, right? None of you, none of none of you are. Um, like this is a we could we could switch this Bible study straight to Sunday, and then I could have a Wednesday morning Bible study again if we wanted to start that up as well, and it wouldn't exclude anybody that way. But that's kind of what I'm thinking right now. But I got to work out some more details of how that would work, and also making sure that we keep things clean and 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 safe in the fellowship hall. So that's coming, and I got to have some conversations about that. So okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, Father who art in heaven, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> All right. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.